Welcome to this message from Eastwood Baptist Church, one church with two locations in Bowling Green and Alberton, Kentucky. To learn more, visit eastwoodbc.org. Now, may the Lord bless you in the hearing of His Holy Word. As you grab your seat, grab your copy of God's Word and go with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. One of the neat things about our God is that He is a God of order. He is a God of wonder. He is a God who is a creator. And He doesn't just create junk. He creates a world that is beautiful and designed to work rightly. And so we can see in the world that God has set the world up in such a way that we can kind of predict how things are going to work. We can kind of predict what's going to happen next. So for instance, in science, these results are, are they're so constant that we call them laws. Laws of nature or laws of creation. For instance, Sir Isaac Newton, who is this famous influential scientist from a few centuries ago, especially in the field of physics, he said this. He said, what goes up must what? That's right. So what goes up must come down. That's a law of physics. Uh, he was famous for other laws of physics, laws of motion. For instance, Newton's first law of motion says that an object that is in motion will stay in motion, and an object that's at rest will stay at rest unless acted upon by another force, all right? So let me illustrate it in this way, just to, so we get in our brain these laws of nature. If I take a, a, a golf ball and put it on a tee and set it there, it will not fly off that tee until I get out my big driver and get up there and whack right down the fairway. Or in my case, more like down the rough. You know what I'm saying? But nevertheless, that ball is going to stay there. That, that's another law of nature. The second law of, of, of motion from Newton says that, that, that the more something weighs, the more force you will need to move it. And so the lighter something is, the easier it is to move. And the heavier something is, the harder it is to move. And so let's say that I have a baseball and a bowling ball. And I wanted to throw those 10 yards. Which would be easier to throw, the baseball or the bowling ball? Baseball. The baseball. Why? Because it's lighter. It's smaller. All right. And finally, there's the third law of motion, which says this, that, every, that for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Now, I know summer's coming. How many of you guys like to get out in the boat and go fishing or go skiing? All right. Who's ready for that, right? He can't wait. And so a boat's a really good way to think about this third law of motion, all right? When it says that for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. So just think about a boat and its propeller as an illustration of this law. For a boat to go forward, which way does the propeller have to face? Backwards, right? So in order to go forward, the propeller has to spin in the opposite direction. It has to push in the opposite direction direction and for it to go fast forward you know what the propeller has to do it has to go faster as well so for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction and our God has set up the world this way with these physical laws but as we come to our text today we don't see physical laws of nature of laws of creation we see spiritual laws particularly one basic spiritual law of creation and it's this and everybody needs to hear this is this is that a person's a salvation in Christ leads to obedience to Christ. That's the law that we see here, basically, is that salvation in Christ leads to obedience in Christ. In other words, we can predict a person's obedience based upon their relationship with Christ. 
those who have been saved by Christ will most likely obey Christ. And those that are not saved by Christ will not obey Christ. So look here at the text with me. Our text today is Philippians chapter 2, 12 through 18. Philippians 2, 12 through 18. I'm going to invite you to stand to honor the reading of the Word of God this morning because every word of it is from God. It's authoritative. It is without error. It's sufficient for life and holiness. It says this in Philippians chapter 2 in the 12th down through the 18th. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray to God. Father, in the strong name of Jesus, I pray that you would help us to see this, this spiritual law here is that those who are in Christ are to obey Christ. I ask, Lord, that you'd help us to live that out. Instruct us today from your word, God. And if there's anybody under the sound of my voice who has yet to repent and believe on Jesus, we pray today would be the day they would see their need. That the Spirit would call them to salvation and they would gladly say yes to Jesus. Father, just move in here amongst your people, God, and do what only you can do. It's in Jesus' name we give you thanks and all God's people said, amen, 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 as you grab your seat. So here's today's takeaway, okay? Today's takeaway is this principle. My salvation in Christ should lead to a lifetime of my growing obedience to Christ. Let me say it again. My salvation in Christ should lead to a lifetime of my growing obedience to Christ. This is a spiritual law. Jesus said it this way. John 14, 15, he said it this way. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In other words, if you love me... You will be obedient to me, Jesus said. My salvation in Christ should lead to a lifetime of my growing obedience to Christ. And that's what Paul means here when he says in, in verse 12, Philippians 2, 12, when he says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You see what he's saying there? He's saying that salvation leads to obedience. That obedience is the result of salvation. Now, just to be clear, there would be some that would come to this text and misunderstand it. There would be some that would come to this text and see what Paul is saying here and come to the opposite conclusion. You see, they would come to this text and read this, work out your salvation, and then conclude that obedience leads to salvation. And think that salvation is a result of obedience. You see, in their minds, they replace the word out with the word for. They don't hear work out your own salvation. They hear work for your own 
salvation. But beloved, I say to you this morning, that's, that's a complete misunderstanding of the text here. Because remember just a few verses earlier in Philippians 1.27, when Paul called us, if you'll remember, Philippians 1.27 says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That first part there, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He is saying here that your life and my life should reflect the great price that Jesus paid to save us. Right, The fact that Jesus lived and, and died and rose again to save us, that's a really weighty reality that deserves a serious life. A serious life that reflects that reality. And he's saying nothing different here in in Philippians 2.12. When he says, work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. He's saying that if you are saved by Christ, your life should reflect that reality. You're not working for your salvation, you're working out of your salvation salvation in other words put the reality of your salvation in to drive just imagine for a moment i mean salvation i can't think of a greater gift okay but if anybody if anybody was in the mood to give me a good gift i might suggest a a 2019 corvette (laughs) all right i mean that's a pretty good gift now just imagine with me for a moment if i was given this great gift i don't even know what colors they come in Whatever color's the fastest is the one I want. (laughs) That's the one I want, okay? And just imagine if I took that Salvation, or that Corvette, I should say, if I took that Corvette and I only turned it on and started it, but never put it into drive, never drove it forward, never got to experience what it was like to live life inside that Corvette, you would say, Ben, you're crazy, Right? I mean, that's not what you do with a Corvette. With a Corvette, you put that thing down into gear and you slam on the gas, right? That's what I would do. I don't know if I would end up in a ditch or not, but that's what I would do. That's what I'd want to do. And that's what we should be doing with our Christian life. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, drive that thing, man. You've been saved. Live it out. Don't sit there in park or in neutral. Put it in drive and enjoy it, and you put it in drive, you put your salvation into drive by obeying Christ, living the life that Christ has called you to live. So my salvation in Christ should lead to a lifetime of my growing obedience to Christ. You and I should trust Christ and obey Christ. Just like the course of that that, that hymn said, right? Trust and obey For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. I pray that every person in this room who has Christ, who has been saved by Christ, would work out of that salvation by obeying Christ. And our text here today gives us five characteristics of what that obedience looks like. You say, I want to obey. What does that obedience look like? Well, our text tells us five things here this morning. So first... We're to obey with fear and trembling. We are to obey with fear and trembling. Look look at verse 12 again. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You see, fear and trembling points to the reverence that we owe to God, that God deserves. 
You see, he's our, he's our heavenly father. And if we're in Christ, he's adopted us into his family by grace, through faith in Jesus. And like a good father, he expects us to obey. And he loves us enough to discipline us when we don't. You see, that's what a good father does according to Hebrews 12, 5 through 8. Uh, the, the Bible explains it this way in that text. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father, whom, whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which you all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Now, as a father of five children, man, I have lots of goals for my children. But one of the goals that, that Christy and I certainly have for our kids is that they would be obedient, right? Obedience is crucial to that parent-child, father-son relationship, father-daughter relationship. In, in fact, children, listen to me very closely. This is important this morning. Obedience to your parents is obedience to God. You say, I, I want to obey God. If you want to obey God, then obey your parents, okay? That's how you do that. And parents, we don't do that so that we can think highly of ourselves, so that we can be the big wigs and all that. We do that because we know that if our children learn to obey us, there's a great opportunity and great possibility that they will in turn learn to obey our Heavenly Father, that they'll obey God. We discipline our children for their own sake, that they might trust God and live. And so obedience is something that Christy and I, we've really worked on to train our children. Now, <laughs> there are some days better than others, amen? Can I get a witness? Not about my kids. Y'all better not be witness. Now, right, I'm telling you right now. <laughs> not about my kids. You need to amen your own, right? <laughs> Some days are indeed better than others. But one of the themes that we've tried to emphasize, and my kids probably get so sick of hearing me saying this, is this theme of first time. In other words, when I tell one of them to do something, they need to do it the first time I tell them to do it. Now, again, some days are better than others, right? Children are not animals with simple souls. They're complex human beings, even as children, which makes obedience a challenge. And to top it all off, they are sinners by nature, just like you and me. And so some days, first time, works really well. And other days, dad and mom have to come along and love them through disciplining them, okay? I remember when my daughter, who's eight years old now, she had just turned three years old and was just beginning to be able to grasp this first time obedience thing. And I told her one day to do something, and she completely ignored me, just kept on doing her little thing. I know she heard me, but she just kept on doing her thing. And so I followed up, with, just as I always do, with this. Honey, how many times does Daddy have to tell you to do something? And her honest little three-year-old response with a great big smile was, free time, Daddy? <laughs> and if she was older, if she were to say it today, I know she's being a smart aleck, Right? But she, she, was, she was being as sincere as she was really trying to answer my question, all right? So I instructed her, and we went on. And then a few days later, I told her to not do something, and she continued to do it. And so I followed up with that little reminder that parents often have to do on a, on a child's behind. And I asked her then, I said, sweetheart, how many times does daddy have to tell you something? 
And this time with little tears running down her face, you know what she said? Two times? <laughs> and so we continued to work on it. You know, it was three the time before, and it was two this time. And so that was progress. And so we eventually got her to grasp in her mind one time, obey mommy and daddy the first time. And listen, y'all, the same is true for our God, y'all. He is our Heavenly Father. How many times, Ben Simpson, how many times should God have to tell us to do something or to not do something? And the answer is, church, how many times? One time. One time. And it's the fear, as it says in our text, the fear and trembling before God that should motivate us to obey him the first time. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be disciplined by God. Can you just imagine? Yes, he loves us, but yes, he loves us enough to discipline us. And I don't want to face that. I don't want you to face that. Then we should obey with fear and trembling. And Paul tells us here in verse 12 that he expects the, the Philippians to obey God uh, whether Paul is there or not. He said, I don't care if I'm in Philippi with you or not, I expect you to obey God. The same is true for us. It shouldn't matter if your pastor or another church member is around you or not. You should still obey God. It doesn't matter if your spouse or your husband is around. You should still obey God. Children, it shouldn't matter if your parents are around or not. You should still obey God. And parents, it shouldn't matter if your kids are around or not. You should still obey God. Because God will lovingly discipline you if you don't. So obey with fear and trembling. This is not a negative thing. Because perfect love casts out fear. It is a reverence thing that I want to honor my daddy and I don't want him to discipline me. Second, you and I are, are to obey with God's help. Obey with God's help. Look at verse 13. And as we look at verse 13, beloved, this is a very hope-filled passage. It says this, it says, For it is God, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Yes, God is calling you and me to work out our salvation by being obedient, but he's not left us to ourselves on that task, right? Look at it. Hey, God himself is working in us. It was the great early church father, St. Augustine, who so famously wrote devotionally to God. He said this. He said, God, command what you will and grant what you command. In other words, God, tell me to do whatever you want, but please, God, help me to obey that command. And that is right here what our text is saying that God does. That's exactly what God does. Man, isn't that marvelous grace? It is. It's beautiful grace. It would be like your boss. Just, to, just imagine for a moment in your workplace. Let's say you work in a warehouse. And your boss comes to you and he says, I need all hundred of those pallets moved from this end of the warehouse to that end of the warehouse. And you're like, okay, oh my goodness, here we go. It's going to take me forever. You go get on your tow motor and you turn around to go get started. And you turn around and right there is your boss on a tow motor with you. And you look at him and he's like, what are you doing? He's like, I, 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 I'm going to help you. 
Well, you told me to do it. I know I told you to do it, but I'm going to help you do it. That's what God has done here, beloved. God has not commanded us and left us to ourselves. He has jumped in with us. In the work he has commanded us, he is working in us to accomplish that work. And that's a beautiful reality. But not only is God working in us to do his good pleasure, to do what he's commanded, he goes a step further than this. Look, look again at the text. He's, he's also working, it says here, for us to want to do what he's commanded. Look at verse 13. Again, he says, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see, the willing is as important as the doing. The willing is as important as the doing. God doesn't just want our actions. He wants our desires. And God doesn't just want our bodies. He wants our hearts. That's why we saw this in Isaiah 29, 13. This negative situation that God said is not good. This is not a good situation. Isaiah 29, 13. The Lord said this about Israel. He said, this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips. In other words, they're using their bodies to do what I've told them to do. While their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. You see, they were being obedient to God. They were fearing God outwardly. But their heart, God didn't have it. And I say to you this morning, God wants a heart that wants to be obedient. And again, that's what God's doing here. That's what our text says God's doing, right? He's working in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's working in us to do his good pleasure and to want to do his good pleasure. And so I, I say to you this morning, if you're struggling today to obey God, then lean on God. Lean on God. God doesn't say, go away from me until you figure this out and then come back. God says, come to me right where you are. Call upon me, lean on me, cling to me, and beg me to grant in you what I've commanded you to do. So if you're struggling to obey God, then go to God and God will help you even more. I believe God will do that because he's promised to do that. He's promised it. So obey with God's help. Third, we're to obey without complaining. Okay, Obey without complaining. That's what we read here in verse 14. Philippians 2.14 says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Other translations render those last two words as without complaining or arguing. It's doing whatever God's calling you to do without fussing about it. Now, why would God have to say this? <laughs> Honestly, why would God have to say this? And the answer is, is because by nature, we complain and we argue, right? It's part and parcel to our fallen human nature to complain about everything. We are a very unsatisfied people. We're not much different from the Israelites as they were walking in the wilderness between Egypt and the promised land of Canaan. 
Now, if you remember, in the, in, the, in the land of slavery, in the land of Egypt, it was awful. It was so bad that, the, the, that Pharaoh had commanded them to, to produce more than they could produce and then stopped giving them the resources to produce it. So they had to go get the resources and produce it. And before that even, God, uh, 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 Pharaoh, not God, but Pharaoh had made a law where he was going to kill all of the newborn sons of Israel. So if it was a baby boy, kill him, he told the midwives. So it was an awful place. It was a terrible place. It was so bad that the people of Israel cried out to God, God, save us from this place, please. And God did. God raised up, the, he raised up the, a deliverer in Moses, didn't he? And Moses comes, and with a mighty hand, God delivers people from Egypt. Leads them out of slavery. And if you remember in the text, not only did God lead them out of slavery, but he led the Egyptians, he stirred up in the Egyptians' heart to give them their treasure as they walked out of the city. <laughs> hey, 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 Israelites, I just wanted to give you my, my mama's gold. Here you go. It was just amazing to see this. Yet once they got out in the wilderness, at every moment they were ready to go back. At every moment they complained, man, we're hungry. We're thirsty. We think you're a bad leader, Moses. Somebody else could do better. I'm sick of this food that God is miraculously providing. They went on and on and they grumbled and complained the entire way. But that's not just an Israelite thing. No, no, it's a fallen human being thing. It is an Alverton, Scottsville, Bowling Green thing. And so Paul wants to make clear here that we are to obey without complaining or arguing. But as we look at the text, do you ever wish, this may sound unspiritual, do you ever wish that you could take a word or two out of some of the Bible? <laughs> just, just one or two words. I mean, it would be so much easier if just one or two words, for instance, this verse would be a really good verse where he says this. If we could just take out the word all. If we could just take out the word all so that it reads, do things without grumbling or disputing. I mean, I, I can do some things without grumbling or complaining, but all things, really God, all things? Beloved, I say to you though, that, 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 that all is in there for a reason this morning. It's in there because even the pagans out in the world, those who do not follow God, who have nothing to do with God, do not know God, they can do some things without grumbling or disputing. But what sets you and me apart is that we strive to do all things without grumbling or complaining. And when we do that, look, look what happens here in verse 15, Philippians 2.15. When we do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. That means, church, that when you and I obey God, we shine like a bright light in this dark world. This world is crooked, it's twisted, but in obeying God without complaining, we stand out as blameless and innocent children without blemish. And even more, you know what? Not only do we stand out, but we also imitate Christ, who was obedient without complaining. Just go back just a few verses to Philippians 2, 5 through 8. 
He says, have this mind, Paul says, among yourselves, which is, in, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So this is talking about Jesus. How did Jesus face life? Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming what, church? Obedient. Even to the point of death. Even death on a cross. You look in the Gospels and show me the moment where Jesus complained on the way to the cross. You say, well, the Garden of Gethsemane, Ben, right there. Jesus asked the Father to take the cup from him. He wasn't complaining. He was just making sure that this was the only way. And God confirmed in him, yes, Jesus, there is no other way to save humanity than for you to die on the cross and rise again. And Jesus Never complained in that. Even on the cross, he didn't complain. In fact, Scripture even prophesied that Jesus would approach obedience unto suffering in this way. You'll remember this from Isaiah 53, verse 7, where it said, he was oppressed. This is talking about Jesus. It's a prophecy about Jesus. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he opened not his mouth. Beloved, Jesus never complained as he was obedient. As he was obedient. If we're to follow Jesus, we must not give in to the temptation to complain. So obey without complaining. Fourth, we are to obey to the end. We're to obey to the end. Look at verse 16, Philippians 2, 16. Paul says, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. One of my greatest joys is to see young people come to Christ. And oftentimes, you know, Scripture, I mean, they understand salvation, but sometimes we in church, we talk in bigger words and, and bigger, bigger realities than, than sometimes they can grasp. And so to make it really easy for a young person to understand what salvation is, what it means to trust Christ as your Savior, I love to equate salvation to a piggyback ride. Maybe you've heard me say this before, right? It, it, maybe you've been in there with your children with me, and, and I've, I've explained it in this way, that, that, that salvation is Christ is like when we get a piggyback ride from our daddy. And just think about that for a moment, right? We climb up on our daddy's back, and we hold on to him as tightly as we can. And he holds on to us. And wherever he goes, we go. We trust that our daddy is going to take us to where we need to go. And that's what he's saying here in one sense, right? Hold on to Jesus and never let go. And I often ask young folks, how long do you have to follow Jesus? I had one of them say one time, 10 years? <laughs> and the answer was, and I turned to their parent or their grandparent that was in there, and I said, how long have you been following Jesus? And she said, she told me the number of years. And then I turned back to the child and I said, and she's still not done obeying Christ. We obey Christ until the day we die. We never stop. There is no end to our 
obedience. We never cease to be obedient to Jesus. If he's our Savior and Lord in the beginning, then he should be our Savior and Lord in the end. In fact, that's what Jesus taught us in Matthew 24, 13. He said, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So beloved, I say to you this morning, how should you obey? To the end. Continue to work out of your salvation to the end. And then finally this morning, how are we to obey? We are to obey with rejoicing. Look at verse 17 and 18 to close us up this morning. He says, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, likewise you also should be glad and rejoice with me. You see, a drink offering was one of the ways that God had prescribed the people of, of God, the Israelites, to sacrifice to him. And so, so Paul is basically saying here, I rejoice in sacrificing myself to God by being obedient to God. So beloved, as you well know, Philippians here is a book of joy. And there is much joy. There is no greater joy than obedience to God. Right? Paul was glad in obeying God. And I say to you, Obey with rejoicing as well. My salvation in Christ should lead to a lifetime of my growing obedience to Christ. That sounds hard, doesn't it? What if there was a shortcut? Check out this video. Our family hasn't always been this close-knit, spiritually healthy, put-together, supermodel attractive, and all-around amazing. We were out of shape, broke, constantly sick. I became hypersensitive to yard work. Every time I tried, I just broke out in a sweat. We were a mess. And worst of all was our spiritual life. We were spiritually dry. Spiritually dehydrated. Spiritually dead. Spiritual skeletons in a spiritual desert. But then we discovered something that changed everything. Oil of Obey. What is Oil of Obey? Thanks to recent scientific breakthroughs that haven't fully been explained to us, we are making available, for the first time ever, a new line of topical and aromatic products that benefit not just your body, but your spirit as well. Spiritual Essential Oils, pure, all-natural, therapeutic, empowering, purifying, moisturizing, gluten-free, naturalistically natural nature nature oils for your whole soul. Prevent spiritual fatigue with concentration. This blend of essential oils distilled from skunk cabbage, stinkwood root, and graveside flower concentrate will help you concentrate on your spiritual health like never before. Devotional time a little dry? Hydrate every soul in your house with Old Testament. We've ground the pages of old unused Bibles into a fine powder and added a touch of peppermint oil. Simply diffuse this scripture mixture and your whole family will be truly living and breathing God's Word. Two slices and one topping, that would be probably ideal for me. Cinnamon is great for purification and protection against environmental threats. Administer a few drops to your skin and ungodly impulses are quickly replaced by a gentle tingling sensation. 
Act now and we'll throw in our proprietary Peace Now dispenser at no extra charge. Fill your house with the peace that passes <laughs> understanding and consciousness. Eat it, drink it, diffuse it, cook with it, put it in your laundry, bathe in it, remove your blood and fill your veins with it, or simply rub it directly on your soul. No, your soul. Now you can care for your soul the way nature intended, with the distill oil of random shrubs and weeds from around the world. Oil of Obey Spiritual Essential Oil. Not just essential, reverential. If it was only that easy, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. But let me just remind you, in closing, the devil offered Jesus a shortcut, didn't he? Remember that temptation? He said, Jesus, I've got the short, quick way, I've got the shortcut to get you where you want to be. If you'll just do this shortcut. And the end, Jesus said, there are no shortcuts. And so I say to you this morning, what the Word of God says here, which is that there are no shortcuts. That's why Paul called us to work out our salvation. It's going to require effort. Obedience isn't always easy. But here's the good news. God works in us to bring about that obedience. And in that obedience, church, is great joy. Great joy. Here's my final prayer this morning. May we be happy in Jesus as we walk in a lifetime of obedience. Hi there, this is Pastor Ben. I have something really important to ask you, but first, I want to say thank you for taking the time to make this digital connection with us through our podcast. I hope the message you just listened to was a blessing, but an even greater blessing than this digital connection would be for you to connect with us in person this coming Sunday at one of Eastwood's two campuses where we get the joy of living life together in Jesus' name. And now for that really important question, which is the most important question you'll ever answer. Where do you stand before God? Now, based on what you've done, the straightforward answer is that you stand guilty and condemned before God. You are a sinner who completely deserves God's wrath forevermore in hell. And I deserve the same thing also. I mean, every person does. Guys, that's terrible news. And even worse is the fact that there's nothing you can do in and of yourself to change that. You need a Savior. But I have good news. God loved the world so much that he sent Jesus to be your savior. Jesus came and lived the perfect life that you cannot live. And he stood condemned on the cross, dying the death you deserve. And three days later, Jesus was raised from the dead to prove to everybody that he is indeed the savior of the world. And now Jesus longs to change your standing before God by making a trade with you. He desires to take what you've earned, which is the wrath of God in hell, and to give you in return what he has earned, which is the blessing of God in heaven. When this trade happens, instead of standing guilty and condemned before God, you will stand forgiven and righteous with the promise of everlasting life. So what must you do to have your standing before God changed? First, admit to God you are a sinner. Second, hate your sins. Turn from them and ask God to forgive you. And finally, turn to Jesus in faith and love, putting your complete hope in Jesus' life, 
death and resurrection and follow him until the day you die. Wherever you are listening to this podcast, Jesus is ready to make this trade with you. And I pray that you would trust in Jesus and be saved. Thank you again for connecting with us. And I hope to see you soon at Eastwood Baptist Church.